0: And welcome to today's podcast. I'm Pete Smith, Director for the Center for Disability Employment Research and Practice. And today um, we'll have David Pethrick, the Deputy CEO of Valid in the studio, um, running a little bit late. We had some slight technical difficulties and couldn't launch on time, although we did try. <laughs> um, but the software got the better of us. Hopefully we've now resolved those issues and David will join us very shortly. So, VALID is a fascinating organisation It has a long history of uh, over 30 years of advocating uh, people with intellectual and developmental disabilities um, as an advocacy organisation. I think it has obviously clearly it has a lot to offer and does a lot of valuable work and we look forward to having David in the studio very shortly to talk about VALID. and its role in advocacy and advocating for people with intellectual and developmental disabilities. Um, Hopefully the tech will work today, at least in the next few minutes, it will anyway. Um, We had a few problems earlier on. You can see that's me just adjusting my microphone. So the technology tech still is. hooks as David's into the studio. So hopefully, and I press this button and press connect. And David, hopefully you're here. I think I am. Brilliant. Okay. <laughs> so, David 2.0, yes. <laughs> welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. David, Valid, interesting organisation, a very long history. I wonder if you can tell us a little bit about Valid.
1: Yeah, so Valid started back in 1989. Kevin Stone set Valid up and is still the CEO today, so... Um, he's done a great job over more than thirty years now. Although he might resent me saying that, because it might age him, uh, it might it might uh, give people a clue to his age, and that we don't like that. So, but no, that has been around for a long time. Started um, doing individual advocacy back in '89, and has has built a whole suite of um, programs around supporting people with disability in that in the intervening thirty years. And there's a number of staff that have been with Kevin for most of that journey.
0: Right. So when you look at advocacy and obviously with a 30-year journey, um, they would have experienced considerable uh, change. Um, What do you think is different today from, let's not try to go back 30 years, but let's say from before the start of the NDIS and and to what things look like right now?
1: Yes. Well, I I think the, the complete flip, of course, has been from funding services to funding individuals. And, and the great promise that that's brought. I don't think we've delivered on it yet, and I don't think anybody suggests we have, although you know, we understand that there's a significant number of people with disability who are doing really well under the NDIS and have got their funding and their life ticking along just to how they would like it to. So we always have to remember that there are a whole lot of people that are really getting benefit out of the NDIS. Unfortunately, I suppose what we see as an advocacy organisation... Is those people who it's not working for, and who uh, whose needs aren't being met, and who, yeah, so we see that sort of pointy end more. So we do have to keep reminding ourselves, and we do, that there are a lot of people who are significantly better off under this new model. But we see lots of glitches in the system that um, we keep talking to the NDIA about, and and we've certainly seen a preparedness to change the way they do things to try and get better. So we're we're still hopeful that. This will be the scheme we all hoped it would be when it was announced back in 2012, and when it kicked off in 2013. And if it is the scheme that we turned out to be the scheme that we hoped it would be, then will people with disabilities will be in a much better position here in Victoria, in Australia.
0: Right. When you talk about um, seeing some of the shortfalls for some people, because clearly, um, despite what some people think people are succeeding quite well yes what are some of the, what are some of the barriers you're seeing for people that are that are not benefiting from the scheme the way we would yeah. like them to
1: um i think there's a few i think the scheme struggles to manage uh complex clients with complex needs um, i also think so it also seems to be we see some evidence of almost an unconscious bias around people with intellectual disabilities and assumptions about their capacity to lead a fulfilling and contributing life. And so we see lots of people with intellectual disabilities denied access to individual capacity building the kind of individual capacity building resources they need over the time frame they need it so that they can build their skills and and live the life that they want to live. And I suppose, so the insurance model for the NDIA is premised, as I understand it, on a long-term approach. Invest in people's skills and capacities now and the long-term benefit to the scheme and to the person with disability is that they will be less reliant on the scheme down the track and they will have a much more fulfilling, rewarding life and make contributions to their own community. So whether that be through volunteering or working or paying taxes or being part of their communities. And, uh, all of those things are meant to happen under the scheme. We, we see, a maybe we'd call it a level of impatience um, in that planners aren't taking the long-term view for people with intellectual disabilities and are looking to save money year on year. And so they're, they're less patient about the time it takes for people with intellectual disabilities to be able to develop those skills and capacities and seeing it much more as a sh- taking a short-term approach. And so we see people who um, have had some improvement in their life and have been using their plans, we think, really well to do the things they want to do. But where the planner doesn't see the progress that they would like to see in the time frame they would like to see, it, they then are taking away some of those resources and people are going backwards in that. And so, you know, I'm... I'd certainly like to see a much more long-term view and a much more positive view from um, the NDIA in relation to the capacity of people with disabilities to lead that life that they want to lead, to be able to get to the places they want to get, rather than being judged as, you know, we'll just provide enough resources to keep you safe, but, you know, we're not going to spend resources. And they're not saying that, but that's the sense we get. We're not going to provide those extra resources to build your capacity because there's this unconscious bias that, you know, people may not believe they do actually have the capacity to achieve those things, and so yeah, so we see people who don't have intellectual disabilities do much better and get much more, um, much more resources, many more resources in their plans, and are, are listened to much more carefully as well about what they want, and and their views are respected much more than than what we're seeing in some cases for people with intellectual disability.
0: So that seems to suggest potentially one of two mindsets, one being that um, if you don't progress quickly, we're not gonna spend money because we wanna save money or the alternate yeah. view may well be that they actually don't understand the progression of disability and improvement and maybe they there's almost, you could argue, an homogenous view of disability and everybody has to progress along the same continuum when there is no homogeny in disability yeah. because your intellectual disability is different to the next person's. Yeah, um, and that seems.
1: And I think be- that's. Well, yeah. I was going to say, and I think that impacts on that sort of short termism approach, and also that the levers are held fairly high. That you know it feels like they sometimes don't trust their planners to make decisions. So you go to a plan meeting, you have a conversation with the planner. The person with disability does. Their family, their advocate can be there, um their providers might be there. And the planner goes away, but they're not the person who gets to make the decision. Somebody who we've never met and the person with disabilities never met you know, is sitting in the, inside the NDIA somewhere who is the delegate. And they make changes to the plan and deny access to resources and parts of the plan without actually engaging in a conversation with uh, the person with disability and their family and the people close to them. So there seems to be that distance that they don't trust their own staff enough to to back their decisions and to back their judgment about what people need to live an ordinary life, as the NGA has termed
0: it. Well, so that seems to be the antithesis of, of what the program is about. Uh, an individualised program can't be run from a, an homogenous perspective, but what you're suggesting is that, that the planners who have some interaction with the individual then forfeit the decision-making to someone who's working off potentially um, a chart or something that says that yeah. this disability progresses like this. And um, if you fall outside of those set of guidelines, well, you're either not trying too hard or you're not worth investing in.
1: And and I don't think there's any intentionality in that. You know, there are good lots of good people in the NDIA. I think it's that this is a very big scheme and there is this pressure on them to manage their budget. And I think that plays out in unintended ways. I think there are unintended consequences of that approach that impact on the lives of people with disabilities and the quality of the plans they get, that they're trying to manage, you know, a budget blowout would be a bad thing um, from their point of view, and I get that. Uh, But if the way to do that is to have this short-term approach about saving money year on year and reducing people's uh, plans, if, if that's the way some people interpret that, then we're going to get those kind of outcomes, because people with intellectual disabilities, it's a much more long-term project. And again, I'm not an insurance expert, but my understanding of the insurance model isn't that, isn't premised on all people reducing their costs over time. It's about spreading. Insurance is about spreading the risk, that some people will do really well really quickly and their need for resources might reduce quite quickly. Other people, it'll be a much slower journey. And some people, it may not ever happen. You know, some people's needs may be so complex that they will always need considerable amounts of support and they should get that and that's how an, an insurance model works. So when we start drilling down to individuals and, and apply this insurance model to an individual, then that's what inevitably happens. If we have this unintended consequence or expectation that everybody's costs will reduce at a similar rate, then we get bad outcomes.
0: Right, and clearly in any scheme um, particularly as you say one that's big there is always going to be unintended consequences and there's always going to be um, we can't deny the fact there's always going to be winners and losers um that's just the reality of any program as diverse as this that's clearly going to support not just 400,000 people but uh, you know significantly more numbers around the edges that will potentially join the scheme but won't get much in the way of financial support but simply access to to other services so as an advocacy organisation, what's the step forward?
1: Yeah, so so we we talk about that a lot internally, and and we have the view that um, it's it's not it's not helpful just to you know, hurl stones at the NDIA because we want it to work as much as they do. So out here, we really we really want it to work. So we want to take. Uh, we want to be positive, take a positive approach to how we deal with it so we you know, we have regular conversations we we get involved where we can to talk about the problems to try and put forward solutions to the problems rather than just endlessly listing what the problems are we we, we try and work with the agency um, to support them to keep getting better and and we and we are we do find it promising that they do keep talking about and t- talking to us about um, being determined to keep getting better recognizing the shortfalls and and continue to try to work on those and so we're comforted by that and we'll continue to talk to them where we see problems we'll continue to um, reach out to them and tell them where we think there are problems and wherever we can put forward and try and help with developing and implementing solutions
0: yeah that's um i mean we've certainly taken that view as well i, I mean i think one of the things that has been very clear to us on the employment side of the center is that the agencies always said to us that we're not the experts in this, we need you to tell us what needs to happen and I think that if the community and particularly organisations took the view that that we're here to help um, mould the scheme into what it will be and I mm. think you know you and I both pro- probably are aware that when this started out, they started out with a blank piece of paper and a manual that had five empty pages and the first one was, this is how you use the key to get in the door and then <laughs> write your own story yeah. and, and I guess that you know, because it it promises so much and it will deliver a lot. And certainly that's getting better and better. I guess there's a level of impatience in the community for change um, and for individuals to start to achieve their goals after what effectively has been, I'm not going to say centuries, but certainly decades of, of indifference isn't the correct word, but kind of holding station when it comes to evolving supports and 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 individuals in the community.
1: Yes. Yeah, I I agree. And again and again, I don't think I've you know, in my time in the sector I've met hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people who by and large are committed and passionate about helping people with disabilities. But big systems, huge systems like this do struggle with managing innovation and with new things and and, again, I think that's, you know, I my view is that one of the problems is that they have a consultation model rather than a collaboration model. So I think we get to where we want to get to quicker if if the agency and government in general, I think this goes for, took an approach of collaborating with the sector rather than just consulting with the sector. So if you have an approach that says we'll get uh, some External consultants in from one of the big five companies. We'll task them with preparing a report for us. They'll go out and do a bit of consultation. They'll meet a whole lot of people, get feedback, and then come back inside the agency. And together, the agency and the consultants will do the report. That's a much slower process than you, you might get your report more quickly. But it's a much slower process of chains of continuing to and fro, rather than getting all getting us all in the room. And I've I've, I've made that case. I've tried to make that case anyway, to people to say, we we all want the same thing. We desperately want this to succeed. They need to trust us enough to be able to get us in a room and talk honestly and openly with us. And we need to understand that just because they're they're talking to us, that doesn't mean we're going to get everything we want, that there are a whole range of um, reasons why they can and can't do certain things. And we have to have a level of understanding of that as well. So by, by designing these things together, we're going to get to where we want to much more quickly because we're out here seeing the problems firsthand. So, but but we have to take some responsibility for that too. If all we ever do is criticise them, uh, then it's it's we shouldn't be surprised if they don't trust us enough to to openly uh, collaborate with us rather than just consult with us.
0: Yeah, look, I, I think that are very valid points. And sorry for the pun, but. Um... <laughs> You know, I've I've met quite a number of the big five consulting firms that are working for the agency and the thing that's always struck me is that we're here to tell them, the consultants, what they need to actually do to understand what they're consulting on. And I I find Mm. that a a disconnect when, as you say, if they trusted the sector enough uh, to actually engage and actually have the sector consult with them rather than some of the big five accounting firms. um, I think we probably would push things along a little bit more. Um so
1: well it would help us to understand the issues they've got. If you know if we had this honest exchange of dialogue, it'd help us to understand the issues they've got that might be preventing them from doing the things that we think they should do. Because we you know I don't always assume that we've got all the answers. I, I you know I respect um that there's a lot of knowledge held in there as well and a lot of wisdom. But and so there is in other organisations out there. So you know we're not certainly not saying come to valid we've got all the answers, we're saying the answers are here they're out there but we need to work together to get to them
0: yes so let's talk about our favorite topic employment yes yes <laughs> hey, that's what we're here for so advocacy in employment and and from our perspective you know part of the role of of the employment process and certainly the process that that we use the discovery customized employment process is about supporting the individual um, to develop self-advocacy skills so they can advocate and, and run their own employment journey. Yes. Um, in some some cases, we don't see a lot of that sort of thing happening in employment services. Um, it's almost as though it's still very much, uh, we'll deliver a service to you and enjoy yourself, as opposed yes. to, well, this is my journey, and how about you help me learn how to t- have a voice so I can do yes. it myself. Um, that's that philosophy still doesn't seem to have embedded itself in employment. So does it, do you have any views on how we can continue to potentially change that so we can give more voice to the individual?
1: Yeah. And I, I think that's, a, that's an, another example of that problem of, the, you know, let's take the DES program, for example. That clearly, you know, it was, as I understand, it was set up to, to help people with intellectual disabilities get employment many, many years ago. And now is clearly failing that category of people, failing people with intellectual disabilities and doing really, really poorly and getting people with intellectual disabilities into employment. And I think one of the challenges is, you know, incentives and perverse incentives. And again, this model of a high level control and command model that has quite large levers and then imposes a sort of a sameness on the way services are delivered. So it doesn't, support and encourage innovation. It doesn't support and encourage um, different models in different places. The, the levers are very big. And so when you pull those levers, there are, seem to be a whole range of disincentives. So um, I, we have a program called Choice Mentors of volunteers who support um, individuals, who support a person with intellectual disability to take more control of their life. And I happen to, as well as working for Valid, I volunteer in that program and support a man here down in Geelong. And he desperately wants to work. He was in a, uh, an ADE and he'd had enough of that. And he then got on his own shoe leather and buses and got around Geelong, you know, getting application forms from McDonald's and Woolworths and Coles and places like that. He was really highly motivated. But when I talked to his support coordinator about finding him at Disability Employment Service, it just turned out that... Uh, she went off to somebody she knew in one of the services, and I won't, I won't name them, um, and they, they came back without meeting us and said, we don't think we're the right service for your guys. We think you'd be better off somewhere else. Well, that's code for he's not, there's not enough money in him. Well, it'll be too hard to find him a job for the amount of funding we get. So, and my understanding is the policy is you're not allowed to say no to people who come to you for help when you're a DES. But they find ways of doing that. In this case, they did it through a back door, and and again, so we're in a position then of do we force the issue? But do we really want to be with the service provider who doesn't want us? And I think the answer to that is is no, from his point of view. But it makes me angry that the system can do that can can turn away people um, without giving them a chance, even.
0: Yeah, it, it's interesting you raise that because um, we've come across instances where where different services are actually literally selecting the type of client they want to work with based on whether they could be successful or not. Um, These sort of examples are quite fascinating in that what we're starting to see in in our work with uh, with NDIS is the rise of more and more um, self-managed clients who are choosing to pursue uh, the employment journey on their own right. Um, It's been... um, You know, clearly it's been coming for some time, but when we're now in recent times, and certainly in in the last couple of weeks, we've started to see almost a wave forming of of people have decided that, you know what, we're going to do this ourselves. Clearly the system doesn't have the flexibility in it, um, any of the employment systems um, to support a real individualized journey. And and whilst I have no doubt some people listening to this will probably think that's a bias on my behalf, and okay, <laughs> possibly it is. Um, but, you know, you can't deny the fact that based on the number of phone calls that we, and messages we're getting these days, that there is a, a move towards doing this yourself. Um, and that illustrates to me that the, the notion of self-advocacy is starting to take root and more people are potentially being influenced by the NDIS to go, you know what, I can do this myself. I've got the yes. money.
1: Well, well and I'd be more comfortable with that approach if, if I was confident it was driven by people taking control of their own uh, lives and, and doing it out of choice. But I think it's partly driven by frustration that the system is failing them as well. And I think so you know people being forced to go down that path and uh, take a maybe a harder journey. So that might lead to some really great outcomes for a whole lot of people. It might it might turn out to be a blessing in disguise and I hope it does. But again, I still you know, we want multiple pathways. You know, we want a properly functioning, you know, flexible, innovative DES system for those people who choose that path and we want to be able to support innovation and self-employment and setting up small businesses for people to take their own journey um, or to use their NDIA packages, NDIS packages to, um, to take their own journey and look for innovative ways to go. So we need a mix of all of those things because there isn't going to be a one-size-fits-all and so I agree with you about people taking their into their own hands and that's great. I'd still like to see, you know, the systems in place be better
0: yeah, and, and I agree with you that. I, I don't think it's a, um again, if we walk down the path of everybody doing the self-managed thing, that becomes a, a, a one size fits all system. But uh, you, you're correct in that what we should have is a continuum of services that people can go, I can do this myself, or I want a little bit of this, this or I want a little bit of that, and have the flexibility to engage where they want. Whereas at the moment, clearly that capacity to, to engage where you want really doesn't exist with any degree of flexibility.
1: That, that's right. And, again, that's where the, we get the two systems colliding, eh? because, again, if I go back to um, the guy I I'm I'm work with in Choice Mentors, we had his NDIA plan meeting recently. The planner put some good resources in for him to um, look for uh, work you know, under finding, I think the heading called finding and keeping a job, went off to the, to the uh, delegate within the agency who had never met him, and they slashed his resources for finding and keeping a job down to, I think it was something like $700. You know, it was a tiny amount of money, completely useless amount of money for him to actually be able to meaningfully look for employment. And again, I don't know what drives that because we didn't get to meet that person. You know, Are they assuming he can't work? Are they assuming that that's a waste of money on him? But again, we don't get to meet that person, they don't meet him, and then make these decisions that make his life harder, make it harder for him to find a job. And at some point, he'll lose hope. You know, He's really enthusiastic. He wants to work. He's really... Uh, gregarious he's got good great skills but at some point he'll give up it, you know. yeah
0: yeah that's interesting i mean the the evidence that we see here in australia and, and it's reinforced by almost identical evidence overseas suggests that when uh, people uh, who are pursuing employment have a bad experience with the system um, they leave the system altogether um, and they become something like that. There's about forty percent of people that have tried to experience employment and had a bad experience who just yes. disappear. Yes, um, they never go back into the system to pursue any form of employment, and that's clearly to their detriment and clearly to the detriment yes. of the community at large.
1: Yes, I, I agree. I agree. And and we we've heard that lots of times too from you know, family and carers and support workers who you know, really do families love. The people they care for, but you know, often there's a fear about trying employment options. Sometimes because it's you know worrying about the impact of failing and whether that'll have a you know that the consequences of that might not be great, as you've just described. Some of it's about fear about losing the DSP, Disability Support Pension, um, and again, so there's lots of work to be done around that to try and make sure that's not a disincentive for people to try work. Um, so, there, yeah, there's a few there's a few little barriers and hurdles out there that we've got work to do on.
0: Um, yeah, it, it's interesting. The centre, um, all of our people got together uh, a week or so back and we had a discussion about the NDIS and, and employment and, and the support mechanisms that are available and, and there are a growing number of support mechanisms. And one of the things that we felt was missing from the discussion was you know you have people that do support coordination which is great Um, but what's really missing is is someone that could coordinate the employment so that works with the individual to say look these are the supports and types of activities that you need to get in your plan and and helps them get those those items in their plan so that they can pursue employment and we, we actually believe that so strongly that we're we're looking at creating those types of roles around australia um, not as a support coordinator, but as an employment coordinator, uh, yeah. almost an advisor on employment, because we think that's one of the things that's missing, and it goes to what you talked about earlier on about the self-advocacy. It's almost like an employment advocate. Um, yes. That seems to be missing, and when we talk to people like Trevor Parmento, who is clearly you know, my mentor and the patron of the center yeah. been doing employment since the 60s, He's pointing to the same thing, going, you know, well, we did that, but we're not doing it anymore, and why not? So yes. I think it illustrates that there's a role for advocacy, both systemic, um, the individual, um, sort of the work that Valor does on, on both an individual and a big scale, but it points to to the need for someone to be an employment advocate for an individual, um, to, to sit beside the individual and their family and provide that employment support to allow them to get the supports, the financial supports they need to pursue employment. Um, we think that's one of the things that's missing from the system at the moment.
1: Well, that's right. And, and even you know, the, the, the low expectations that, that permeate through the whole system, through you know, through schools and special schools and families, you know, we know that low expectations about the capacity of people with intellectual disability in particular to be able to work. Is problematic because if, if nobody really believes it, that's what happens when you have a plan. You know, it goes to a, a delegate who, who doesn't really believe that um, my friend can work and so slashes the amount of funding for uh, his employment supports simply because, well, I can only assume because he thinks that's not a good value for money. And how that how anyone thinks that, I, I don't know under the insurance model. you know, A lot of the NDIS initial thinking was, premised around a significant number of people with disabilities moving into the workforce and therefore easing the burden on the NDIA, the scheme, the NDIS scheme, but also, you know, having people being contributing taxpayers and doing all of spending money and doing all of the things that we know power our economy.
0: Yeah. And I think that earlier on in the the discussion um, a number of years ago at the agency when they were looking at. I think then a lower number of people participating in, or as they call it, economic participation. I think when they were looking at a figure of, of 20, 25%, they were talking about an economic cost of something like 6 to $7 billion annually. Mm. If that figure wasn't achieved, well, here we are seven, eight years further along and that figure they're looking for is higher. So I can only guess that the... That the absence or the missing economic participation benefit is probably approaching you know nine ten billion dollars surely that's a clear signal that yes. we're not doing it right yet
1: yes and yes and I agree and and you know your sense of the, an employment advocate of some sort to support the individual it is it is that sense of being the agency and and others being prepared to push that decision making down to the lowest level we can to allow to trust people to make good decisions about their own employment opportunities and how they want to spend that money. And we know sometimes people will get it wrong and make mistakes. But we all make mistakes. You know, we're, we're allowed to make mistakes. It's part of growing up and part of being a human is that we make mistakes and we hopefully learn from them and we move on. And so if, if we try and control things at some high level, because we're worried about whether people will spend the money wisely and we think, now, why we would think 10 steps removed, we think we can make a better decision about how to spend the money for an individual than that individual can, I beg his belief, I must say. But but there is this sort of fear of letting go of control, I think, of, of that money because we're, we're worried in some way about it being misused or not used according to how we think it should be used. But the more we can push it out and give people some flexibility and allow them to innovate the better off will be and the more people will get jobs and the scheme will be better off in the long run.
0: Right. So let's go back to Valid for a second then. Yes. What, do you, what do you see as, your, as the, the next bunch of challenges, the great challenges that you that you have to work with?
1: Well, I think for us, it's a lot of our work is still driven by problems with the way the NDIA is rolling out the scheme and the way planning happens. And so a lot of our focus is still on at one end on supporting people individually with advocacy to try and fix those problems, to to address the, the problems they're having with the plan or the inadequacies of the plan they get. Uh, so trying to reverse those. Also, we're doing a lot of work on the proactive side around trying to build self-advocacy skills and community development work. Uh, we're also doing a lot of work trying to, Support families through the planning process. The planning process is quite complex and uh, dense. You know, it's not a, it's not the simple process that was talked about when all this started. You know, that it would just be a, an informal chat with a planner and bingo, you'd have a plan. It's, it's quite jargonistic and and full of complexity and baffling for. Uh, for families and parents. And so we're doing a lot of work. We've been doing a lot of work around helping families get better outcomes and better plans to understand the process better. But we're also supporting individuals in in place-based approaches. Out, We've got a whole lot of peer action groups that, where we support people with disabilities in a whole range of communities. I think we're 27 or 28 of those groups running around Victoria to come together to identify what the problems are in their local communities and what the solutions might be in their local communities. And to engage with organizations and people and individual you know, individuals and, and services in those communities to try and solve those problems together. and we're seeing some really some really stand up standout work happening there people growing in their own individual capacity, but actually getting things done and things changed in local communities.
0: Excellent. David. One of the topical subjects at the moment is we, we have a Royal Commission going on, yes, um, and they recently yes. issued their, uh, their issue paper on employment, and clearly in August, um, they'll be expecting submissions from people. Um, what are your thoughts on, on where this is going in from terms of the Royal Commission and employment? What do you think they could potentially achieve?
1: Yeah, I think... I don't know. I think their task is a difficult one with our friend COVID-19 around, that, you know, not being able to do things face-to-face. That's problematic for people with disabilities, particularly people with intellectual disabilities, to you know, to do written submissions or to be able to be heard in a way, in a meaningful way, you know, that face-to-face is much better, but all things shall pass and so um, we'll hopefully get to a time that happens. Uh, we are sort of bracing ourselves a bit for we think there'll be some really difficult things come out of that. There'll be some that, that will surprise the Australian community and horrify them, I suspect, as well. Um, sadly, we probably won't be surprised by them, but we'll be equally horrified by the things that come out. Again, we, we're committed to trying to work productively with the Royal Commission to try and get the best outcomes we can, to give people with disability the best opportunity to be heard through those processes. And to, to see change happen, so that we prevent some of the things that are we know are happening from continuing to happen. So we're, we're taking a you know positive approach that we that that we're seeing the glass half full that great things might come out of this. But you know, we do know that there you know, we're still hearing now about the Aboriginal Deaths in Custody Royal Commission from I think twenty five years ago now, and and concerns that you know, things haven't that hasn't been the game changer that we all would have hoped. And so we'll be alert to that possibility as well. And But we'll be doing whatever we can to try and make sure that whatever comes out of this is positive and that there is positive change that happens and that you know, our role in continuing to protect people with disability and protect their human rights, we'll, we take it very seriously.
0: Right. David, this has been brilliant so far. Um, and I, I'd like to just ask you one more question. Sure. Um, I asked you earlier on what do you think the challenges are for valid going forward, but yes. if if someone said to, rang you up today and said David, what's the one piece of advice you could give me? What would that be?
1: Um, so around
0: advocacy, absolutely.
1: Yeah. So it would be it's a it's an incredibly tough role, and we've got a, a great team of advocates working on it. I, I do worry about um, them, you know, being neck deep in problems all of the time and the impact that can potentially have on their outlook about how the system works and about uh, their, out, yeah, their own how it affects their own personal well-being. And so I, I think one of the great things about Valid is that we have got a team of people. And I also work in advocacy organisations where there's only been one or two of us. Um, so we do have a great team that can support each other. And so finding people... To be able to talk to and to get support and to be able to thrash out ideas and to be able to work together to, to keep improving our thinking about our approaches and to help us you know develop advocacy plans because have you know having a plan for what you want to achieve in your advocacy work i think is, is really really that's that's the thing i think is really important that if you haven't got a plan if you don't work out a plan with the person with disability who you're advocating for about what outcomes you want, then you're just wandering along. You only know, end up shouting from the moral high ground and and shouting about the the ills and all everything that's wrong. But that doesn't necessarily get the outcome for the person you're advocating for. And so we need we really do need to have a focus on the outcomes we want, and we need to have a plan for how we're going to get there. And a really important part of that is having people that you trust and and have confidence in that you can talk to about developing those plans and run ideas past. And I think we've got a great culture of that in our advocacy team and within our broader staff team that, that there is lots of conversation going on and I think that's a that would be my advice. And if you're out there feeling isolated, then you really need to get yourself, you know, a mentor or a support person or a colleague who that you, you trust and can talk things through with and run ideas past so that you can end up developing those plans and protect yourself from from the the problems that might come if you carry those burdens alone.
0: Well, David, that's brilliant advice. Um, Sage advice, wisdom, you might even call it.
1: (laughs) I wouldn't go that far.
0: (laughs) But thank you for your time today. That's been excellent. Um, Some brilliant insights into the work of Allard and uh, self-advocacy. And we very much appreciate your time and contribution.
1: Thanks for having me, Peter. It's good to talk to you again. And Not hopefully problem. we'll talk again soon.
0: I'm sure we will. Thanks, David. You have a good day. Cheers. Bye-bye.